This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to either view on YouTube or listen on iTunes uh, what is our 41st edition of the Thrive Podcast, and I was just told that this is Season 2, Episode 1, so I kind of like the sound of that. We do thank you so very much for listening and for viewing. Uh, It has been a learning experience for me, and I hope that it has been a learning experience for you as well. We do want to remind you that the Thrive Podcast is now five days a week, not just one. And so we invite you to listen on iTunes Monday through Friday for new content every single day. And I'm very honored today to have as my guest, Miss Medina P-Rhyme. Yeah, Did I say it you got correctly? it right. All right. Miss uh, <laughs> Perrine is an artist. She uh, has her own show that is touring now on a 30-city tour across the United States of America. Uh, she's a native of New Orleans. Boom. Uh, tell us your story. Oh, no. We'd be here all day. <laughs> well, so. g- g- give us the abridged <laughs> version of your story. Uh. So if you come see the show, I talk a lot about um, just my journey, Um, but I talk about it through hair. That was the best avenue I could talk about it through. Otherwise, it'll be a a nine-hour production of when I was born from Brenda and Ronnie and all of that. Um, But to sum it up, my story is I just grew up in New Orleans. I I came from two parents (laughs) who loved each other. I had two older sisters. both of them, all of us grew up Muslim, right, uh, with the Nation of Islam. Okay. And um, that was a lot. Growing up in New Orleans was very, everything was, okay, either you Baptist or Catholic, which one? <laughs> so when I came in with sweatpants under my skirt, like, in school, they were like, what are you doing? And who are you? Do you believe in Jesus? We need to pray for you. And I went through that from probably all the elementary. Um, but through that, I was able to look at things in a different perspective. I would see, I would, I would definitely understand the practice, especially if my uh, friends were like having a sleepover the next day we had to go to church. So I would sit in church and I was like, okay, I get it. This is cool. All right. Everybody stand up and sing. Okay. We still stand up. And if I went to a Catholic church, then like at uh, St. Maria Goretti's uh, church, it was a lot of bending and yes. you know, it was a lot of, yeah, knees was, Oh, uh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, I, I got to learn a lot because I always uh, my mom was very open with me um, learning. So that's pretty much me growing up, just being open to other uh, practices of of religion and um, other practices of how people see life. I would just listen, and observe people. I was mm-hmm. very quiet. Mm-hmm. I was a, a writer, so I would sit in the back of the class and write poetry. Mm-hmm. Um. And I would like to do things differently. And my teachers would be like, you're just a strange, strange child. <laughs> you, you're smart. You're strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for Black History Month, I remember being Alex Haley because I thought Alex Haley is dope. Like he, he was able to trace his life story. And then beyond his life, he went back and then wrote a movie about it. I was like, man. Other kids was like, okay, for Black History Month, I'm be Rosa Parks. Right. Martin Luther King. Right. Not to discredit any of these people. They they are brilliant leaders, pioneers. However, I thought Alex Haley was dope. Okay. So I came to uh, to the school dressed up like Alex Haley and did a speech in, in poetry. And um the rest of the students in the class was like, What is what she trying to do? She trying to outdo us, outshine us. <laughs> and my teachers were so like uh just proud. I was like, Okay. Hmm, maybe you should look into doing theater and stuff like that. And I was like, nah, I'm too shy. I don't want to do it. Uh, when it came to reading, I was the person they would uh, elect to um, read to the class. Mm-hmm. And then the class would be like, yeah, let her read it. So I don't have to read it. She do it good. That's why they say like, she read good. Mm-hmm. So um, I was a narrator most of the time in like school plays, things like that. But I was too afraid to be an actual character to, you know, act it out. And so one year, this was like my seventh grade year in elementary school, and um, 
we got to audition. And so Ms. Richardson was the drama teacher. She was very dramatic, very straightforward. So I did Still I Rise by, um, by Maya Angelou, because at the time I read the Maya Angelou book, and I was like, yes, I'm going to just kill it. Then I saw four other people do Still I Rise, and I was like, dang. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try it anyway. And I tried to put my own spin on it. Right. And the drama teacher was like, oh, my God, what did you? Oh, this is horrible. You were just terrible. Sorry, honey, you're terrible. And I was like, well, I'll never audition again. I won't. I will just stick to science and reading, and I'll stay in my corner and write poetry. So that's through elementary and high school. I was in the band, went to Warren Easton. What instrument? Uh, clarinet. Okay. I tried the trumpet. I was tough. I was like, no. They say you have to have the right lips for it. I've never been able to blow a trumpet. I've tried several times. I, I can't do it. Can't get a sound out of it. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I, I tried. I was like, let me get my Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs> I tried because I watched that episode of Cosby, and I was like, okay, let me see if I puff my cheeks out. <laughs> that's gonna work. And it didn't happen that way. So. All right. Uh, I picked up the clarinet, and my band teacher, Mr. Targano, at the time was like, pretty good at that. Okay. You should stick to that. So I was like, I'm gonna be in the marching band, and the marching band was not. <laughs> it was work. It was so much work. I just like, let me just do classical. Let me just sit down and play. Let me do concert band. I like that. But I also had a knack for uh, science. So I ended up enrolling in math and science school in uh, high school. And I was too animated for my science class. Like, really animated. I like to read aloud in class. This was your assessment or your instructor's assessment? This was my peer's assessment. Okay. I was like, why? So... <laughs> I was reading biology in class. Yeah, Mr. Hoxie was, I love biology, geology. I loved his class. Okay. So I took that opportunity to read the class as a pastor. I was like, well, in my mind of what a, a, a Baptist church pastor would sound like if they were to read about the mitochondria. Help me. Show me. So uh, me. <laughs> uh, what we're going to do first is we're going to look into the organisms. <laughs> and when we look at the organisms of the cellular uh, development of uh, life, <laughs> and then the class would just be sitting there watching me yeah. read biology, and Mr. Hoxie would look over his shoulder and just like, ah, oh, that P. Ryan. <laughs> Thank you. Next, who like to read next? And everybody else was like, let her read. You know, and it, the stuff would stick with me. And um, my peers would be like, you silly. Are you funny? Are, you know, or they'll ask me to sing stuff. So I'll be singing stuff in class. And I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was a cl class clown or anything. Mm -hmm. It was just, if I was close to somebody, I felt comfortable and I we would just chill. We would gel together. Mm -hmm. And that's how I would learn stuff. We would make songs out of it. Um, yeah, in gym class, I will make songs about how we didn't like gym class, you okay. know. Um, Do you remember any of them? Nah, I got to have my friends. It was uh, my friend Ev and Renitra's. Me and I just be kicking in in gym class, making songs. Not it, Once we together, it all just clicked. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, um, so that, coming from high school into college, that was the, the fun part. Um I was like, nah, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do theater. I'm gonna be business minded. I'll do hair. I'll stick to that. But my heart was into entertainment. But I wasn't sure if I could match that because I was still kind of shy. I didn't. I was. I was fun clowning with people, but in my mind, I'm like, ah, I'm not. I'm not good enough. I can't do that kind of stuff. So, what marked the transition point where you decided that you could do this? Uh, my older sister said that they were doing some film in uh, New Orleans. She was like, why don't we take headshots okay. and do it? And we were laughed out of there because the headshots were terrible. Um, so, But she was like, why don't you start going to auditions? You know. So I was at the University of New Orleans studying uh, business. And there was the, uh, these auditions for vagina monologues. And I was like, I'm going to that. Definitely. This is going to speak to me because I happen to have a vagina. Mm -hmm. This is going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. And they kind of was like, oh, you're so cute, and you look too young. And at the time I was 17, I was like, okay, then what do I do? And one woman was in uh, the audition. She said, I think you're fabulous, and I think you need to audition again. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being uh, cast in a show with the seniors. Now, I'm freshman, they're seniors, so they're looking at me like, how did you get to be in this show? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, she saw something in me. And during the process, the other cast members saw something in me and it was like you're good like you have a lot of potential and you keep doing it mm -hmm. and so I was like really 
Okay. So I kept going to auditions, took the show um, to the Lapetee Theater in New Orleans and the Tennessee Williams Festival. And other people was like, you're good. And then my family was like, you're good. You should keep doing it. I said, really? I got a lot of confirmation. But somewhere in my head, I was just like, eh, all right, maybe they got a point. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, I didn't like you know. Uh, I felt that. Um, what about you know? Did you not like? Being the, I felt like the only black person in the room. There was a time in the classroom where this, uh, I don't know what we were talking about, but this white guy just mentioned he just said nigga in the classroom, and the teacher didn't reprimand him or say anything. And I was just sitting in the classroom like, did he just say the N word? And it's only me and two other uh, black people in the classroom. So I'm looking at them, and they didn't hear it because they were just in their own world. And I mm-hmm. just felt rattled. Like, something in me was just like, I can't. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the teacher like, you just let him say that. And so I didn't know what to say. I don't know why I was just so frozen mm-hmm. in the moment. And at that time, you know, I was just uh, transitioning into being becoming an adult. You know, I'm, I'm in college. And I don't have any school teachers telling me what I should and shouldn't do. or So I was just like, okay, I could just walk out of class if I want to. So I did. I just cracked my stuff up and walked out. And I was like, I don't have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. So when I talked to counselors about it, you know, I said I felt like I was disrespected in my classroom. And the teacher didn't say anything. So the counselor, who was also white, was just like, well, I mean, it's not a big deal. I mean, you know, it's just people say things. You can just let it go. And I didn't feel like I, I can resonate with anybody. So I ended up going to HBCU, Southern A&M in Baton Rouge. And uh, I was excited about that because I was like, yeah, I could be around my peers. They're not going to judge me. Um, it's going to be an easy situation because we're all black. And and I, I really did. I thought it was going to be a breeze, and it wasn't. You still had to work hard. You had to show up to class. The professors was harder. They said, look, uh, you need to show up on time. Right. And I'm like, I still have trouble with showing up on time. I don't know. <laughs> I try, um, but the, at the same time, I knew my my professors loved me. They knew how much of a, a struggle it would be outside of the the school, the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, which I really appreciated that. What'd you major in when you got up here? Theater. Theater. I focused so, on so, theater. So, so you did switch majors. I did. And you thought that it was a beneficial experience. I did. Good. Now the whole time I complained. The whole time with um, the process of getting into the HBCU, with getting an award letter, with with standing long lines, with financial aid, all of that just made me tougher. I knew that there was everything takes is a process. And I learned that the most, and most people uh, have issues with HBCUs. Don't go to HBCU because you know you never gonna, it's a lot of negativity around that. The thing you hear about Southern and I'm born and raised Baton Rouge. My father graduated from Southern. My sister graduated from Southern. Uh, my mother worked at Southern for 29 years. I'm saying that so that anybody <laughs> who has something to say about what I'm about to say, y'all can keep it to yourselves. Okay. <clears throat> That's a way to clean it up. <laughs> my mother worked in the registrar's office. Right. And then she became the director of admissions for the law center. Right. Southern still doesn't know how to register students without there being a problem. I used to listen to problems at the dinner table. We had to eat, <laughs> we, we had to eat dinner as a family. And I used to listen to my mother complain about the registration system mm-hmm. when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And here we are in the year 2018, and I'm way away from being a child. And I'm still hearing stories, not just from what you just said, but I hear it all the time. And I cannot for the life of me figure out why in the year 2018, Southern still has a problem registering its students. So I, I just wanted to, to say it does make you tougher because it's it's been a problem for 40 plus years yes. that that they have not been able to tackle and get their arms around. Yep. I don't know. Uh, my dad, who, who graduated from Dillard University, he said, oh, that's just how it is. That's how it is. And I was just like, but really? 13 hours to register for school? You know, it was two hours. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad I graduated from HBCU. Mm-hmm. 
always. I'll never take that experience away. I can complain about a lot of stuff, but there was there was no way I would be where I am if it wasn't for the professors, the student body, uh, the experience. Um, and that experience led me to this experience now. Um, I was working with uh, with um, Terrence Turner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was working with him in this a play. A good guy to know. Yeah. Mm, yes. But I didn't know he was going to be all of that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he was just a guy in the show. And um, he, we were doing this play called Our Boycott. Um, at the time, uh, Dr. Aileen Hendricks was directing. She felt that the student body needed to write a, a play about what was going on um, during the 1950s in Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, my friend Katori wrote a play called Our Boycott, and it's about all the people that, you know, either sacrificed a, um, a ride, a bus ride, to work. People walked, people got, you know, shared their cars, and that was a part of history I didn't know existed because mm-hmm. it was always Montgomery Boycott. Right. But there were, it was all over. People had many, uh, it was a mini revolution, and a mini revolution is major. Absolutely. <laughs> it was major. Uh, so... Uh, when we did the play, I met T.T. I call him T.T. because he's just that kind of guy. He's cool. Um, he Thank played. you for sharing that. I don't know what to call him from now on. <laughs> I, I, I call him Terrence, but now I've got a whole new name <laughs> to call him. T.T. Got it. T-T. Keep going. <laughs> okay, anyway, so <laughs> he played Reverend Jameson, and his character... Um, this just it showed the power of what a reverend can have on a community. Mm-hmm. Words like word power. Mm-hmm. Um, we need it. Like words beat us up every day. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about the play was we got to share our words. It was from the youth and um, the professor at the time. Just felt like yeah, you know, y'all need to say it. Y'all need to say it how you want to say it. Y'all do it how you want to do it. And that opportunity um, connected me to lifelong friends to this day. Um, and we still create to this day. Um, he introduced me to Dr. Turner, who was his mom, but she also was like really invested in, um, theater really. And I was like, you live in my life. I wanted to have a hair salon. I was going to run my business. My business would be run a salon and then have a theater company and then have people come out and we all just do theater and tell stories. And she said, yeah, that's what I do. And at the time, it was just an office. And I saw the whole shift of that office turn into a black box theater. And from a black box theater, now she has a, a theater company at Cortana. And I was just looking at the whole transition in a matter of, you know, I guess a decade. Yes, ma'am. It's awesome. It is. So it made me feel like anything's possible. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and because of that opportunity, I was able to develop my chops as an actor I uh, did a show, Whole Fast Dreams, and Blue Denim, and Old Settler, and she took us to L.A. to perform for Ruby D. And How was that experience? I couldn't stop crying. I was backstage with, like, Loretta Devine and Taraji Henson. I'm just looking at all these other actors who are very normal. They're backstage, running lines, just like me. Um... They, they have the Loretta Vine was backstage scratching her hair, about to put her wig on. And I'm like, they're me. Like, we are all a reflection of excellence. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, they've been in the game way longer than mm-hmm. me. So I'm just sitting there in awe. And um, we, are, we got to perform, and I'm sitting there. Ruby D is sitting center stage, and I'm in the front, and I'm performing for her. And at the end, we all get to do a curtain call, like all of us young actors, Older actors, men, women, just holding hands, and we bow to her. And I got to just hug her neck afterwards. Like, I, the Southern thing, hug her neck. I got yeah. to do that. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, you're Ruby D? She was like, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I got to perform for you. She said, you did good. You sassy. I said, she said I was sassy. You know? And it's, and <sighs> Well, let me ask you this. Did you feel like you belonged in the room? No. Really? I didn't. Was that before or after? Uh, well, now I think I deserved it. 
Okay. Then no. Then I was just like, I don't know. Okay, how so I got here. so you're sitting in the back and you're sitting with Loretta Devine and Taraji P. Henson, who I would love to meet one day because she's gorgeous. She has so much <laughs> energy. She's yeah. spinning around back. What's she doing? Okay. She's gorgeous. <laughs> Forget about the energy part. She's <laughs> she's gorgeous. Uh uh my son and I went to a movie just the other day and they were previewing some of her movies coming up and he said, Well they just gonna come because Taraji Henson's and I said Indeed. You don't go right, they're gonna come because Taraji gets it, is in it because she's gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. even though I don't watch Empire because I think it's stupid, but she's gorgeous. Um, <laughs> but before I can understand you might be intimidated around these veteran actors, mm-hmm. after the performance, did you still feel like you didn't belong in the room? I well, there's this thing that I saw on the way here and it said, bless the meek. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like I've been a part of the the meek. Just like, okay, I, I have to just go along with the process. And I felt like I was just going along with the process. I didn't really process that you are on stage. You just performed with these veterans mm-hmm. and you were invited to be here. That didn't connect. I was just like, ooh, Wow, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I didn't really process that I belonged. I didn't until you just asked that question. Now I feel like, yeah, you you're pretty good at what you do. Yeah, the divine brought you to this to this place. So yeah, yeah you belonged. Yeah. You said earlier that you were raised a black Muslim. Mm-hmm. Do you still practice Islam? I do not. Okay. Do you want to talk about that? I can. Okay. Um, Right now, I just there's phases in life where my uh, practices have changed. I was into uh, I was at Star Hill for a while, and I felt like here in the, town. Yeah. Okay, Pastor yeah. Jetson. Yeah. Okay. I was there, and I enjoyed the whole process. I mean, the process in me. Mm-hmm. Um, just going to Bible study and talking openly about it because I I really didn't have a background in it. Mm-hmm. Um. And most of my background was looking at the Quran, and I didn't understand the Quran because it was in Arabic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, I don't get it, but everybody else is doing it, so I better go along with it because, <laughs> okay. you know, it's going to be a tongue lashing, right? you know, at the house. And even in church, um, it used to give me the, the willies a little bit because I felt judgment. I was like, okay, who's this young lady? But I think people just— just uh, trying to observe, trying to gather who you are. Mm-hmm. And I took it as judgment. Like, oh, they judging me. They don't like the way I dress. Or they don't like my hair. It was a, a mental breakdown. And what I liked about uh, Justin is that he wanted to remain human. He was like, I want you to see me as a human being. And let's look at the word. Mm-hmm. And you need to see yourself as a human being studying the word in order to, to get you through whatever obstacles you're going through mm-hmm. or whatever spiritual battle, uh, battles you're going through. And I felt I had to go through that process to understand that there was a spiritual battle. Um, I just thought everything was just happening to me. Mm-hmm. And I would see other people catch the Holy Ghost and then I'm sitting there crying and I see other people just, you know, looking off into space and I'm just like, what's happening with them? What's what's going on? And, and I'm the only one that's going through this? Mm-hmm. Do they not see that the world's trying to attack me and, you know, church felt like that place where everybody could say, yeah, I've been attacked today, and so I need you mm-hmm. to get me back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, I did love it. Uh, I decided to move to Chicago because um, I just felt like here in Baton Rouge, it was, uh, it was very segregated, and I felt like, uh, I don't know, I just got this push to move. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to L.A. to, to be an actor, and I ended up in Chicago. Okay. <laughs> I felt like L.A. is going to be warm and people are going to understand what it's like to be an artist. And I did kind of just, you know, shake off Baton Rouge. Like, there's not enough artists. They don't understand me. But this is where I was able to develop myself as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I moved to Chicago to continue being um, an artist because uh, Dr. Hendrix um, once again reached out to her students to write a play. Mm-hmm about what happened in Katrina. And I had all my families from New Orleans, but we moved to Baton Rouge at the time. Mm-hmm. And I had friends that were affected by Katrina. I was like, come stay with me. 
and I could talk about it. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, I could definitely write about it. I could tell you about uh, my friend who was on the rooftop for four days. I could tell you about what it's like living with three guys and a dog. <laughs> I could tell you what it's like to see the, post-tra- the, the post-traumatic uh, disorder, stress, the post-traumatic stress of trying to find an apartment and afraid that that apartment is going to get taken from you. Um, it didn't happen to me, mm-hmm. but listening or seeing the fear of I'm not going to go get an apartment because they're going to see my Louisiana license and know that I'm from New Orleans. And so people were afraid to step out during that time. So I wanted to write about that. And it was included in the play we wrote, Katrina's Footprints, and it was sent to Chicago, um, to Columbia College, where those students read what we wrote because they wanted to know what a Louisianian would say about um, Katrina versus their experience coming into this city to help clean up. Mm -hmm. So they combined the stories. And one of the women in the show... She was just like, why don't you move here? Like, you're a really good artist. And I'm like, all these people tell me this stuff all the time, and I just feel like I'm just going with the flow. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I just wrote it because I felt passionate about it. She was like, well, why don't you just come see what it's like here? And it was great. For four years, I was in Chicago as a teaching artist, um, auditioning, uh, working at Marshalls, and just trying to, you know, stay afloat. Mm-hmm. Uh just to, I guess, uh, support my passion. And she kept telling me, uh, the, the woman I'm talking about was Janae. She kept telling me, why are you working at Marshalls? You're an artist. I was like, I need money. <laughs> she was like, well, why don't you just focus on your art and that'll bring you money. And so I, was, I started applying to be a teaching artist, going into schools, teaching theater. Um, and I was so passionate about it. Sometimes the language didn't, uh, translate to the students. It was like, okay, you're a really good actor, but what are you talking about? What is theater? What is that? Mm-hmm. You're telling me I have to t- share with you vulnerability? I don't do that. In Chicago, everybody's really guarded mm-hmm. because either they've lost, they've been traumatized by losing a, a brother or uncle or a boyfriend or a mother, a, a daughter. Like the gun violence is so powerful there. And it's here, too, in Baton Rouge and in New Orleans. But I felt like I was most affected as an adult seeing my peers, the people I was working with at Marshalls, the students I was talking with. They were dealing with a lot of trauma. So it wasn't as free spirit as me, like, oh, I'm going to go audition for a play. Mm-hmm. I want you to come and audition for a play. And it was like, I'm not really thinking about plays right now. Mm-hmm. So I had to use that as a way to heal people so that they could kind of break those barriers mm-hmm. um, so that they could share their stories. And I felt that was more important than just getting a check, you know, working as a clerk at Marshalls. Um, that became more of a, a push for me to want to teach more because I would hear these stories and I would start to see how valuable my youth were. And even the other teachers would see how the youth was so open to share their stories through poetry or uh, they would come up with songs or they would, like, I'm going to write this short skit about working at a a shoe department. And that was, it was all great. They were able to to do themselves. I did the same thing that my teachers did for me in the past. So I loved it, loved it, loved it. When did you write your show, your one-woman show about hair? Ah, that was 2012. Uh, my friend at the time, we were in a show, we were in a few shows together, and uh, he, I was like, you know, my theater company, Impact, is doing solo jams. Okay. So they allow anybody who wants to tell their story to get an hour. They get one hour, it's just them, they either sing, dance, or tell a story. And just submit your stuff. He was like, you don't even have to really submit a play, just tell them you're interested. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the premise about hair. <laughs> I was like, okay, I want to talk about hair because I like hair. And then as I started writing it, it became one page to like 27 pages. And I was just like, wow. And each chapter was about how I was traumatized by my community based on whatever was going on in my life. And the only way I can control it was through my hair. Um... I can control 
um, my ability to be pretty with my hair. I couldn't control other people's attention by changing my hair. Um, Cause I felt like I was, I was a puppet sometimes just doing whatever the teachers tell me to do or doing whatever my parents told me to do or doing whatever my peers told me to do in order to fit in. And so that would be my little act of rebellion. Um, but then after a while, I was just like, it's not really rebellion. It's just me just being me. And I don't know why that seems like a, a such a, a thing. Me being me is being rebellious. I haven't seen the play. Mm-hmm. Help me to know what I am in for. <laughs> Fun. Uh, it's very relatable. Um, have you ever had a bad haircut? Yes. You had to go to school after yes. your bad haircut? You just wanted to wear a hat, but you couldn't? Kept my head down the entire day. Right. And it was not at school. It was at church. That uh, too. We 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 got haircuts on Saturday, and he messed up my head. And I told my mother I did not want to come to church on Sunday. Well, I'm I'm the pastor's son, <laughs> and my mother sings in the choir. You come into church, <clears throat> so I literally sat in all of worship and in Sunday school with my head down because I've I, I hated the way that my hair was cut. I I vividly remember, and and that was, God, I was 14, 15 years old, so we were talking 42 years ago, and I still remember that. See? That's what the show is. It's, it's me exposing myself, shame. Mm-hmm. Um, how I turned shame into joy for myself. I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? If I don't like what's going on in my life, so I'm about to cut my hair. Uh, I definitely don't like how people are treating me in in school. I'm getting teased because I cut my hair and I had to go to school that way because mm-hmm. my dad was trying to teach me a lesson. Like, you can't just, you need to think things through. You can't just like, I'm just going to do it and then don't have any consequences. Mm-hmm. So there are consequences when you walk into a school looking crazy. And in my mind, I wasn't looking crazy. I thought I looked great. Everybody's like, you need to get your hair combed. Like, you need a hair press. Like, what's wrong with you? Your mama let you go outside? All day. All day. And I had to walk home with that same narrative. My friends were like, girl, you look crazy. It was shame. Shame, shame, shame. Yeah. It shamed me to get a perm. And then in that, you think that that's going to change your life then. Like, now, I'm going to be accepted, right? I'm good. No, because if that perm don't come out right. You still got to deal with, now I have to go out in public and deal with that. Um, that's the, the show is about me growing up and dealing with those embarrassing moments and teachable moments and then going into the, to the workforce with the same pressure. How do I wear my hair? How will I be accepted? And so you have to look for what's acceptable because you... you if I can't be myself, then I have to be somebody else in order to be with in order to be engaging with other people. So what's the moral of the story? The moral story is just you really have to fight to be comfortable in your skin. There is something special about how you are your makeup. There's something special about how you think. It's something special about how you carry yourself. And it's not an act of rebellion. You're just being honest. And I feel that somewhere down the road we were taught that we had to be meek, um, that we were taught um, meekness is hum- being humble. Right. And it's not. It's not the same. Okay. Explain that to me because I do believe that meekness is about humility. In fact, I just taught Bible study the other day. Uh on meekness as one of the attributes of the fruit of the spirit. So I'm, I'm curious about uh, your, your, your feelings with regard to meekness. Uh, my definition, well, I looked up the definition of meek. Mm-hmm. I said, what does that mean? Because I thought it was meek and humble. They always go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And according to meek, is just going along. Just go along with it. 
it doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with it. It just means you go along with it. But I don't know what your definition is. Well, I, I try to employ a biblical definition okay. of it. And biblically, uh, meekness has to do with gentle strength. Yeah. Uh, the, the ability to be strong enough not to respond to every provocation that is presented to you. Jesus describes himself as meek. Jesus praises the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit uh, the earth. And uh, uh, Eugene Peterson, in his uh, translation of that passage in, in Matthew, uh, he translates it this way, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm not going to get it exactly right. <laughs> but he says, uh, you are blessed when you are comfortable with who you are. Mm. No more, no less. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's the biblical definition of meekness is what I uh, I espouse. And I encourage uh, people to to embrace and seek to live. It's it's part of the Christ example. Uh, and it's part of uh, what we as disciples of Christ should seek uh, to employ. I make the point, made the point, and I'm not trying to teach you a Bible study, but I'm, I'm just making the point. Meekness is, is often equated with weakness, uh, but other than the fact that they rhyme, they're, they're, there's no similarity between the two at all. Uh, some people would say that if, if I said something to you, or let me flip it, if you said something to me that was insulting, that strength would be for me to come back at you. Mm -hmm. I think the stronger response would be to not come back and not feel like I have diminished myself in not coming back. I'm comfortable with who I am. And so I don't need you to define me. I don't need you to, to affirm me. I'm comfortable with who I am. So whatever you think about me, that's your prerogative, but I'm not going to be guided, nor am I going to be manipulated by your thought process. That is meekness. Mm. Mm. I, I agree with it, uh, especially as an actor, people always assume like uh, the ultimate gain is the Oscars. Like once you get an Oscar, you mm -hmm. are recognized as the most honorable actor. And I was like, the Oscars was never really for me. It was an entity of white actors or, or people that felt like, okay, we want to be. They created a system, a board. Where they were like, okay, now we're going to recognize who's going to be the best actor. But it wasn't really, it didn't include us in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so for me to like debate, like, I need to be on the Oscars. We should be recognized. It's, it's I can practice meekness with that because mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like that, I knew that system wasn't really designed for me. Mm -hmm. I had me in mind. They were looking for actors that look like them. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, when you're meek, you are punished. Like if you want to. Jesus was punished a lot. And I feel like I have been punished a lot for just being myself. Mm -hmm. um, in the workplace, I was very verbal about the treatment of students. Mm -hmm. I was like, this process, this, this class is too long. Like, they're already, they're exhausted. They've been in seven classes all day. I, you know, I'm like, let's just cut the classes short. Why not? Like, we could still have valuable learning time if you just... Put it in small increments. Mm -hmm. And principals was like, look, I don't know who you are, <laughs> but you need to go somewhere else because mm -hmm. you are intervening with the system that we have in place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, yeah, I like I like the definition of meekness being a, a gentle strength. I feel like I had to exercise my gentle strength a lot, especially as a, a woman. And I, I don't want to bring gender into it too much, but as a woman, yes, you can you can speak softly and you can still be heard when you when you speak softly. Do you believe the women run the world? Yeah, because I do. I do. I believe that 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 women exhibit the a consistency of strength and character and integrity 
that is not found so much in uh, men. And so I, uh, I, I often tell women, if you guys knew how strong you were, if you guys knew how, how bright you were, how sharp you were, y'all be running the world. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm just curious if, mm-hmm. if, if, if that's something that you would agree with. I definitely recognize, well, I'm a mother, so I recognize women are always like, why didn't he think of that? Like, why didn't he just do that? Like, that's just normal. You would think. You have to think ahead. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, women just, we think differently. We think of how it's going to affect uh, the whole being, what I'm thinking of as a child. You have to think 10 steps ahead. Mm-hmm. Are there clothes for next week? Or did you prepare breakfast? Because when we wake up, breakfast has to be made. Um, did you bathe? Did you bathe today? You're thinking of yourself. You're thinking of your children, especially women that have multiple children. It's just where your brain, the process of where you have to uh, to plan the act of planning, the act of uh, being a, uh, able to give time and nurturing, it's just exhausting. Mm-hmm. And I, not that I don't think men could be nurturing at all. I think just we process things totally different. And so if you have the element of nurture, the element of planning, the element of love, the element of selflessness, then you're going to exhaust yourself as a lady. You have to really remind yourself. You have to do a lot of affirming that you're doing the right thing. And you mm-hmm. see, you don't see that much on TV. You, you, we, we, uh, how we're represented on TV is pretty, you know, shallow. Mm-hmm. Just money hungry, uh, abusive, um, just joyless. And I remember. Now, are you was, talking women in general or African American women? I'm talking about African American women. Okay. Because when I see, I'm looking for me when I'm on TV. Right. You know, I see, I see other races on TV, but I don't really connect with them mm-hmm. when it comes to how I look. I think that's just natural. Mm-hmm. You draw, you're drawn to people that you look who you look like. Okay. And so when I'm on TV, when I'm watching TV, I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's another <laughs> fight. This is always abuse or. The idea of being a boss means you have to be aggressive, mm-hmm. and that's that's where that the meekness you're talking about. You can be very strong and collected, and there were images of that earlier in TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, I was just imagining Florida Evans. Good times. <laughs> good yes. times. Good times is not a good time. Every time I watch this, every time I watch the show, I'm like, it's not a good time. Right. Jeez, why does she have to endure all of it? But that's what it is sometimes. It's just enduring hardships and just saying, you know what, I'm gonna be all right. Yeah. I got my family. We're still good. I wake up tomorrow morning, make some oatmeal. We, <laughs> we good. Yeah. Um but uh the to come back to being an actor and in heaven, I I definitely want the shift of what what black women look like on on TV to look whole it's it's very shallow it's very dark it's not deep enough um i watched this show how to get away with murder and they show this character shows levels of intelligence and manipulation and it shows passion um it almost shows as a whole person but it's all revolved around murder and that's that's the only thing You're I don't like. You're talking about the Annalise character? Annalise. Okay. I like how she thinks. Viola Davis. Okay. Viola Davis. I, I love her. Love her. She's very raw. I consider myself to be a raw actor. But, you know, that's not what the show is about. My show is something totally different. It's just a whole person, me, being very relatable, being very honest about my I've experiences. I've been sitting here trying to think of the name of it, and it will not come to me. But I recently watched a... A Netflix movie. Oh, Neverly. Sine Lathan. Oh, Neverly Ever After. That's it. That's so it. It's based on the book. Okay, and and I thoroughly enjoyed the movie, mm-hmm. and I was just wondering because they're both about hair. Mm-hmm. If your one woman show is in any way similar to that. Yeah. Um, hers focus is focused on like how it affects a relationship. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I haven't read the book Napoli Ever After, but uh, I'm, I'm sure it's similar to that, and that was written in the 90s. Um, my play is definitely relatable because it was honest. Mm -hmm. the, the traditions of, the traditions passed from mothers to their daughters. Right. Is your hair, in order to look good, your hair needs to be straight. Right. In order to be presentable professionally, your hair needs to be straight. In order to be accepted by <laughs> um, your your elders, your hair needs to be straight. Uh -huh. like you got to look good. And looking uh -huh. good always meant straight. And that meant that you couldn't swim. That meant you couldn't go outside when it rained. It meant um, you couldn't sweat. It meant you can't go outside because the humidity is bad, especially right. in Louisiana. So it became beauty was about pain. Um, like Beyonce's song, Pretty Hurts. It Yeah, you felt like... It was a cost to pay to just to look good. And I'm like, I had all kind of ideas in my head. I just want to go outside and run. But I knew within those five minutes of running outside, my hair was going to be a puff. So you are familiar with the hot comb. Yes. I talk about that in my play. Okay. How that's, it's gone now. People don't use hot combs unless you just go into a, a traditionally hairdresser that's just like nope i got that hot comb well back back when my mother uh was using a hot comb she she did it herself she she, she didn't go to a hairdresser why she had to do it she, herself? she she would take that hot comb <laughs> and stick it on the oven yeah on, on the stove top yeah. uh man she got an electric hot comb yeah and then she threw that away she yeah. said it didn't get hot enough so she went yeah. back to yeah to, to the old comb it gets up to 400 degrees on the stove yeah and, you know, I talk about it in my show. Garrett Morgan designed it. He and um, Madam C.J. Walker mm -hmm. were in business together. And so, I mean, he was coming up with all these patents, and she was like, you, brother, we need to work together. Yeah. In my mind, that's how they were sitting down in, in the house sipping tea. Mm -hmm. And she was like, what, what else you got? What? what? You made a hot comb? Boy, <laughs> you to make this money. Because yeah. people are tired. People are tired of just, they want to just style. I yeah. just want to put in a different style. It's just a fro. Then in, in braids was just too much, too too African, you know. So he came up with the hot comb, and he was like, yeah, it can get really hot if you put it on the stove. You, right. 400 degrees. So yeah. you were getting third-degree burns. That's why she did it herself. Yeah. She was like, ain't nobody else about to do my hair. I know exactly where my forehead at. So, yes, I can see. You know? Yeah. That's what it was. And now my sister, who uh, who, who was raised, of course, with us, and, and uh, she's now 55 years okay. old. And she just recently went back to straightening her hair uh, uh. because... And I have to take some responsibility for that. I would fuss at her about her hair not being straight. Uh, she came in here just yesterday, came to this office just yesterday, and she told me, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be wearing this straight hair. <laughs> <laughs> Takes too much time okay. to do this. It so, does. So what is it about us black men that that I would say to my sister, you need to straighten your hair up. What's my problem? I think your intent is you want her to look good. You want her to feel good. Um, part of style, styling the hair, you have a different energy when your hair is styled. Mm -hmm. And the most go-to style is straight mm -hmm. because then it's appealing because you see, you see it a lot. You mm -hmm. see it on TV. The the most attractive women on TV have straight hair. They, you know, Viola even puts on wigs as Annalise. When she's not Annalise, she has a fro. Um, that image is just embedded in us. Secretly, it's like a it's it's subliminal. But you could look at a black woman. I mean, think about. Um, I'm going back like in the 70s, 80s. Um, like Grace Jones had a, a fro and. She was very that was, short haircut. Yeah, that was like, oh, that's masculine. Yeah. Um, and you look now at Lupita, and then people see like she's gorgeous. She has a short fade. She, you know, I feel like uh, the the thing is that some men have just been had, <laughs> have been uh have have been blindfolded by what beauty is but i think intention like the intention is i just want you to feel good sister i want you to to know that you, i just want you to look good so you can feel good mm -hmm. maybe you sense 
that she's not feeling right mm-hmm. about the way she look or maybe it's how she carrying herself. That's why you made the comment. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of men just are repulsed by a woman with a, a boy haircut. Well, it's not repulsed, but I, 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 I do find it interesting that uh, uh, I push her to and, and, and true confessions on worldwide uh, podcast, but but I I, I kind of <laughs> <laughs> I kind of push her to 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 do that because uh, I just think that she feels better or. I, maybe it's my perception of how she feels uh, Indeed. And when, when when she does that. Uh, and maybe I should just stay in my lane and let her wear her hair whatever kind of way she wants to. Yeah, to just wear. tell her she look beautiful. You're well, beautiful, girl. I, I do think she's beautiful. She's, yeah. She, I, I love her to death. Uh, the, 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 the idea that the appearance of our hair is an extension of our inner self-esteem and and personal personalities, I I find a lot of value in that. I do think that it's also true for men, but not uh, to the same extent. Uh, but but I do think that it's true uh, for men as well. And how has your play been received as you've gone around to different places? Oh my God. I just did it in uh, I did it here in Baton Rouge at the Red Shoes and it was uh, maybe 30 30 people and people were crying they came up and hugged me it was like thank you yeah uh, they were laughing with me it's very interactive too so I asked people like when did you go natural and some people was like I ain't natural <laughs> like don't judge me because I'm not natural and it's not a judgment I just I just I'm curious mm-hmm and I, I want people to get out of their head that this show is not about judging you. I'm coming across like, you need to go natural. Because this woman argued with me. This I, I, I invited her to my show. And she said, uh-uh, this is about going, growing locks. I don't like dreadlocks. I said, you don't have to. I'm just inviting you to a show because you can relate to it. Mm-hmm. You've had bad hair days. You've been turned down from getting a job because your hair wasn't straight. You've You've been teased. By your, what you thought was cute, you thought you know the flip with the the crinkles and the the bun was cute when you walked out the hairdressing and your friends look at it like, girl, who did your hair? And then you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, girl, I just gotta go get this done. Girl, I was just playing around, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, I was just like, we just need to, to. It's a sisterhood, and it's not even just sisterhood, but um, men even can receive the show because mm-hmm. they know what it was like sitting in a barber shop. You see somebody messing up. The dude in front of you here, and you're like, dang, I picked yeah. the wrong barber. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <sighs> but you got to go to work or to church, or you have to be around your family, your community family, and they sit there and, and pass judgment on you, and you can laugh at it, or you can be traumatized by it. There's two instances where I've told, I've, I've heard women decide not to be natural at all because they want a husband. Oh well, the the men I meet would not would would never see me That's with natural hair. That's the whole hair. premise behind Napoli Ever After. That and this woman wants a certain man to be her husband, and mm-hmm. she does not feel like he will find her attractive unless her hair is a certain kind of way, and it is promoted by her mother, mm-hmm. uh, who pushes mm-hmm. this on her mm-hmm. uh, and I, uh, I I found a, a, a lot of truth in, in what I was watching mm-hmm. This the, the play is truthful is real real experiences and when I talk to people during the show you see a lot of this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, and even the men was like yes I remember my sister getting a perm yeah. I got a perm. Like, men was like, I got a perm. I got a texturizer. Yeah. No. You know? Um, I don't want to get deep, but it, it's so it's such a problem that it intimidates the Supreme Court that if I decide to walk into a job and say I was discriminated against because I had locks, because at the time I had locks, and I want to I wanna push press charges on a, on a corporation or a, a business or whatever, 
about what they're, they're practicing, they brush it away. The Supreme Court brushed that whole idea of you can, you're, you're not being discriminatory culturally um, if somebody that's black or a woman wants to wear hair naturally. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so interesting. Like, yeah. you see that it's an issue. Like, it, it's an issue. We can't yeah. progress in our businesses or in our talents because of hair. So now hair is deeper than just us internally. Other people that are in control of companies have a problem with it. Like, now you're trying to rebel against me. Is You want to assimilate. Why not? But I have every talent that you need, but now my appearance is questioning, making you feel questionable about who you are mm-hmm. and what your company represents. So that's another thing about... I'm just being myself. I wake up with this texture hair. I wake up like this, and that intimidates you. So who has the real problem? With regard to business and representation, uh, the most immediate response to that or, or, or solution to that is black entrepreneurship. There you go. Uh, uh, <laughs> For real. A, a, a company feels like it has a right, and I, I think they do. Have mm-hmm. a right to say we're a private business. We get to say who represents us, right? You know, and we get to say how they should appear as they represent us. And the only way that African Americans can respond to that effectively is to be your own boss, which is another reason why we should be pushing towards black entrepreneurship. True. That's what this is. Because I see what you're doing as as black entrepreneurship. It is. It's a one-woman show. It's your show. It's you. And from what you're telling me, if I saw your show in Houston and I saw your show in Mobile, which is where you're supposed to be going next, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be the same show. That, That there might be some elements that are similar, but that your show is interactive mm-hmm. and it it adjusts to the audience mm-hmm. to whom you are presenting the show. True. And I think that that's the essence of what entrepreneurship is supposed to be, your adaptability uh, <laughs> to, to those to whom you're working. True. I have to cut this short. I know you do. Uh, you got things to do. Uh, we go. But, we'll do. but I, I want to ask one question. Okay. Uh, I think I knew the answer to the question that I normally ask. I always ask people, uh, do you want to stay in Baton Rouge? But clearly you've already left. So the answer, <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that question is no. But you have lived in other parts of the country. I, I have a twist on the question. Okay. You, you, you've, you've lived in the West. You've lived in the North, uh, primarily urban, metropolitan area, Chicago, mm-hmm. Los Angeles. You're, you're from New Orleans, mm-hmm. which when I lived there was one of the most cosmopolitan cities uh, in the <laughs> world. Uh, mm. I never felt like New Orleans belonged to the South. I always felt like it was, it was misplaced. It was, more, it was more of an East Coast city that just happened to be in South Louisiana. Mm. Of the places that you have lived, which place... Uh, appeals most to you? Do you understand how heavy that question is? Oh, um, because I'm right now. I'm at this this crossroad. That's why I'm touring. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, I don't know where I actually belong right now. I love where my family is, but um, I feel like my spirit is like, okay, go to Chicago, and I love Chicago. I love the support there. It's very, uh, I don't want to say pro-black, but it is. It's, it's that there's black communities, communities of brown people, whatever color people, whatever color. I don't, I don't care, but it's just people that see that there should be justice across the board. And they actually fight for it. Um, I see it a lot in Chicago. So my heart is directed in that direction where I feel like, okay, this is where you need to be. This is where you developed your passion mm-hmm. to help people. Um, the pool here in Baton Rouge is just like, this is my roots, where I was able to really shine as an actor, uh, shine as an artist, shine as a, a director. Um, but then 
who knows where I'm going. I, I want to go international. I want to be able to go to Thailand and and do the show and uh, learn a different language. I want to be able to go to Africa and and I'm just putting it all out there. So if anybody in like Ghana or you know <laughs> want to see the show, let me know because you know I could use that. I can use that kind of love. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, I haven't been to Africa. I, I just want to travel anywhere mm-hmm. and listen to other people share their stories with me. Uh, that's why I like doing the show. It's very personal. People can touch my hand while I'm talking to them. It's not behind a, a screen where people could turn the next channel. They're, they're stuck with me for an hour. And I'm stuck with them. And we all get to experience it together. So I think it's, it's dope. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and share. Thank with us you. Today. Before you go... Medina is not your first name. It's your middle name. You shared with that. That's, you shared that true. with me before yeah. you started, before we started taping. What is your first name? My first name is Bashira. Bashira. Yes. So, Bashira mm-hmm. Medina, thank you so much for coming <laughs> and sharing with us on the Thrive Podcast today. I enjoyed myself. Thank, thank you all for viewing. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next time. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs>